told my daughter, my oldest, before the service began that I feel like a uh, racehorse at the starting blocks, like rearing and ready to go. The last five minutes before the service started, I was getting really annoyed. I wanted to just get going. Uh, so that means you might be kind of in for it uh, today, friends. Uh, Matthew, Mark, chapter 1. And um, let's read, let's just read the run-up to our verses today. We are in verses 12 through 13, looking at this threefold inauguration of Jesus as the king of the world. Um, and we find ourselves in that second portion of that inauguration today, his testing or temptation in the wilderness. But let's begin in verse 1 and uh, just appreciate uh, what's going on here from the perspective of our author. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate bugs and honey. And he preached, saying, After me, he who is mightier. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Hebrew slaves weren't even allowed to untie the sandals of their rabbis. It was considered beneath that of a Hebrew slave in Hebrew culture. And John says, I'm beneath that. I'm not even worthy to do that which no one is worthy to do. It's a remarkable statement of humility. Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Well, in those days, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your word. May this morning you, uh, by the careful observation of your scriptures, uh, by the company of the saints, by the uh, faithful teaching um, of your uh, flawed and crippled servant, uh, may, you, uh, may you open your word to us. May you penetrate us as your scripture tells us the word has a way of doing. May you dig into our hearts. May you cut away that which is old, that which is unprofitable, that which is sinful, that which is harmful. And Lord, may you restore 
and make us new and make us into your image by this moment, uh, one little bit at a time. We love you and we ask um, and we trust that you are able to do exactly that. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. May be seated. The Christian life, I believe, can be summed up in a threefold way. Repentance, sanctification, representation. Repentance, sanctification, representation. Repentance, the Christian life begins this way and it is continually about this. Turning from sin, rejecting the old and all of its sinful impulses, and walking, as Jesus said, in his footsteps. It's a life of repentance. It's a life of sanctification, meaning becoming progressively more and more like Jesus and less and less like the devil. You're born like the devil. Rebellion is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from them, right? We're born like the devil. The Christian life is perpetually looking more and more like our Savior and less and less like the devil in whose image we were born, in essence. As Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Repentance followed by sanctification. And then the third is representation. Now that you are a redeemed, renewed creation destined for a new eternal home, your new ambition in life is meant to be to accurately represent your Savior and King in a fallen world. Salt and light in a dark place. Salt preserves the decay. Light shines in the darkness. Repentance, sanctification, representation. I'm convinced that the whole of the Christian life falls into those, that sort of trifold description. Repent, pursue holiness, and represent Jesus rightly through your actions and your words. I would like us to see how Mark presents Jesus as our champion in those three ways. Jesus takes on the identity of fallen man in the baptism of repentance, we spent the last two Sundays unpacking this, trying to get our heads around this. He identifies with us so that we can identify with him. Put on Christ, Paul said. So he is our ultimate champion in repentance. He repented in the waters of baptism, not for his own sin, of course, because he is sinless, but for you. Secondly, he then goes toe-to-toe with Satan and temptation, and he wins. <laughs> That's the key. He wins, which is what we just read. And then in the next verses, 14 and 15, jumping ahead to next week, he takes on the role of man in representing God in his world, in his preaching. Repent the The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus bears the image of God as man, as Adam and Eve and all who were to come from him 
were intended to do, only what they forfeited, Jesus does perfectly. He represents the Father, the image bearer of God, only without sin. So do you see he's our champion in the waters of repentance? He's our champion, we'll see today, in sanctification. Go and sin no more. He resists the devil, and he wins, and then he represents God on the earth. Repentance, sanctification, representation. Well, to understand this and to unpack this, I would like us to consider the first of three things. Number one, let us consider the elements of Mark's account. As Mark paints the picture of the perfect man, Jesus, the Son of God, the King on the throne of the earth, let us notice the elements of Mark's account. Six things are noted, and I sent them to you this week. And I would like us to notice the connection with each of these six elements in verses 12 and 13 with the story of the rest of humanity where Adam, Moses, Israel as a nation, where they all failed, Jesus succeeds. Where created man and fallen men have failed, Jesus succeeds. He does what humankind did only without sin. Let's look at it first. Number one, Jesus is cast out. He is driven out. The Spirit drove him. As Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, as Israel is driven from Egypt, so to hear, not by the ideas of men, but in each case, it is the will of God who moves Adam out of the garden, Israel out of Egypt, and Jesus out into the wilderness. MacArthur puts it this way, the Holy Spirit becomes the intermediary between his divine nature and his human nature. And so the Spirit says to the Son, go. Don't try to untangle that. Your head will explode. So Jesus takes the place of man cast out into the wilderness, experiencing the consequence of sin, but unlike Adam and all who come after him, Jesus doesn't deserve it. So Jesus is cast out. Secondly, he is cast out specifically into the wilderness. Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden out into the untamed wilderness where thorn and thistle will grow. Not in the Garden of Eden. God says you'll endure thorn and thistle by the sweat of your brow. You will reap and harvest. But not in the garden. Out there. In the wilderness, if you will. Israel is cast out of Egypt into the wilderness where they would yearn for the easy waters and plentiful food of Egypt. Here, Jesus is thrust into the wilderness where, as Matthew and Luke reliably inform us, he is hungry, he is thirsty, he is exposed, he is physically weakened. Thirdly, he's there for 40 days. 
as Israel spent 40 years in the judgment of the wilderness wandering because of their doubt. Moses spent 40 years in anonymity after he murders the Egyptian. Here, Jesus' wilderness testing lasts for the duration symbolic of judgment. He is not there because of his own doubt, like Israel, who refused to go into the land. You know the story. The men are huge. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. They have huge cities. Oh, let's stone Moses and go back to Egypt. The Lord says, because you doubted, you'll spend the 40 years in the wilderness. That's what the book of Numbers is called. It's called Demidmar. It's called In the Wilderness. In the desert. And so Jesus is not in the desert or in the wilderness because of his own doubt like Israel, nor for his own sin like Adam and Moses. But for us, Jesus takes on himself the symbolic consequence of sin, represented in the wilderness testing. Fourthly, he's tempted by Satan. Adam and Eve were tempted. Did they win? No, they lost, right? Israel was tempted to doubt, and they stumbled. Here, Jesus is tempted and tested, but where all humanity has failed before, Jesus succeeds. Hebrews tells us really clearly we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So where mankind failed, in the toe-to-toe battle with sin, temptation, Satan himself, Jesus, comes out victorious. Fifthly, we note that the wild animals are with him. This is all just from verses 12 and 13. You can see it right there. The wild animals are with him. Not the livestock, the wild animals. Believe it or not, this is the first of two positives. We see two positives and two negatives. The two negatives are the wilderness itself, always a picture of judgment, uncertainty, isolation, removal of plenty, removal of blessing. And of course, the second negative is the tempting of Satan. Two negatives, but two positives. The wild animals are there. You say, well, how's that a positive? The animals are with them, and it is implied he is not harmed. We'll see how this is a positive in a moment. The second positive is the angels ministering to him. That's the sixth and final element. The angels minister to him. Wilderness and Satan... Animals and angels, two and two. Now, in order to understand these, in order to appreciate what's going on here in these few verses from Mark, in this aspect specifically, I'm going to have to ask you to think big picture, like big picture humanity, big picture all of human existence, big picture Genesis 1, Revelation 22, right? Big whole story. By this, by Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, resisting temptation from Satan, with the wild animals, 
and the angels diakonos serving him. The picture of the new creation needs to start forming in our minds. He is, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, right? He is making all things new. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are being made new. Being made, meaning it's a spectrum. It's a journey. The picture of that is first here. The wild animals are with him, and the implication is that he has charge over them instead of fearing them and they fearing him, which is a direct result of the expulsion from the garden in the fall. The animals will fear you, which means in the garden, Adam got to walk up to the squirrel and scratch its little chin, which is what we want to do, right? Don't you sometimes want to scratch a squirrel's chin? But you can't. They are deathly terrified of you. And if you were to get a hold of one of them, you would probably regret it right away. This is known in theological terms as the paradise theme. This is the paradise theme. Here's the idea. Jesus' presence on earth marks the beginning of the return of paradise. It's the beginning of the new creation. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. All things are being made new. So you've begun, but are you finished? Thanks be to God, you would say, no, I'm not, right? Because this hurts, and that hurts, and this thing, and that thing, and my dog scratched me in the face. You see what I'm saying? Like, this is not it. Being made new. You are a new creation, but there is a new creation fulfillment, completion yet to come. So Jesus' presence on earth initiates paradise regained, returned, new creation initiated. Again, thinking big picture, the earth is stained by sin, right? Like God said to Cain, the earth cries out to me over the blood of your brother Abel. As if the earth has, has a, a repulsive reaction, this good creation that God made, has a, it is repulsed by the murderous blood of Abel, or the the murderous actions of Cain to shed Abel's blood into the soil of God's good earth. And it recoils as if it were against it. Thorns, disease, death, storms, tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, famines, droughts, war, murder, all of these things are unwelcome intrusions on God's good world, each the result of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall. It's a spiral. The question is, what could possibly cure 
this existence from these storms and wars and murders and famines? What could possibly bring an end to selfishness and greed in the human heart, drought and evil? Maybe the right human government can do it. Maybe the right communal living system where you own nothing and you'll be happy. You heard that phrase? This is what our world, specifically those of the political and ideological left, claim will erase all of these ills from human existence. We can solve war and famine and everything. Just need the right system with the right people in charge our ideas. We just need the right kind of government, and we need to tamp down or eliminate all the wrong-headed thinking people, which is you, by the way, in this notion of solution. We need population control so we don't use up Earth's resources. We need industrial control to ease the climate crisis. We need global economic reform to manage the plight of the pure and rein in the ambitions of the greedy. Listen, these are the ideas of a human race trying to solve the sin problem by human means. But the scriptures tell us a few things about this. Number one, no human solution can solve the great spiritual problem of sin. Only the rebirth of the individual can do that. You can't do that wholesale. You can't do that in mass. It's individual, one by one. What the sin condition requires that has initiated everything that is broken in this world is a personal spiritual rebirth Allah Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart of flesh to replace your old heart of stone. The idea is a new core being set in place of the tainted one that is there. You have to be made new altogether from the inside out. Every individual, try as they might, no global governing structure will ever accomplish this. No right government no communal living system, no global economic reform will ever renew the spiritual heart of fallen man. Meanwhile, nothing short of this can actually usher humanity into true peace. That's the first thing the scriptures tell us about the human condition there's no human solution to solve the spiritual condition of sin. Secondly, Jesus himself is this paradise they so desperately long to accomplish apart from him. How do we solve the problem of the world? It definitely can't be Jesus and all of his morality. Anything but the church, anything but the Bible. They so desperately want to look anywhere and everywhere else except the one place of truth and healing and success and victory and new creation and new life. Do you see, friends? Anywhere but that. The answer definitely doesn't fall within the text of Scripture. He is our peace, Paul says in Ephesians 2.14. And doesn't everything in your life that's broken ultimately come down to that? 
If your health was at peace, you'd be healed, right? If your family was at peace, they'd all be redeemed and walking into glory one step at a time. If your community was at peace, they'd all be renewed by the Spirit. You see what I'm saying? He is our peace. He is the paradise, the utopia that the world is trying to create by all means except him. He is our peace, and as such, he is the initiator of paradise regained. His presence on earth changes everything. Back to our text. The animals are with him, and he's not harmed. The wilderness is barren, but the angels bring him food. The place of chaos and insecurity where man goes because of failure becomes a place of victory, peace, and plenty. Do you see it, friends? Jesus marching into the wilderness makes the wilderness into paradise. That's the picture. Listen to this from Isaiah The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. Do you get that? Like my little guy, like my little Luke, (laughs) he's got like a big fat cow who's like, would make excellent steak, and he's got like a lion and like a baby cow, right, and a lamb, and they're just like all walking together, and Luke's like, over here, guys, you know, and they're like, you know, there's that lion, right, you know? There's Luke at the front, like Winnie the Pooh, like Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh just leading the animals through the forest. Only big and scary. The cow and the bear shall graze instead of eating you. Their young shall lie down together instead of fighting each other and being eaten by each other. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And like all the moms are getting like sweaty palms, like as I read that, like getting nervous, like, oh, get my baby away from those snakes. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. Now, you got to keep thinking big picture with me, okay? Those of us who hold to a classic premillennial disposition believes that this Isaiah prophecy is still yet to be accomplished. That this is not figurative, metaphorical of simply the church age blessing the world by the, by the very presence of the church in the world. no. We believe there will come a day when Jesus physically reigns on the earth in a manner beyond mere Christian influence. This is classic premillennial eschatology. I'm not even talking about dispensationalism. I'm talking about classic premillennial eschatology. A thousand years, Jesus will reign on the earth, and that is a literal future event. And his presence on the earth turns the wilderness into paradise. He turns chaos into peace. 
at minimum, in spite of any eschatological difference of interpretation, meaning what you think the end of time looks like, as Grant Osborne puts it, I love this phrasing, Jesus, in his glorious presence, transforms this world. Just as the new creation in Revelation 21 is a paradise where all things are made new, when Jesus is on this earth, he is beginning the process of making all things new. And as a believer, you are on that journey. A new creation, not yet fully remade. All things are being made new. This 40 days of wilderness tempting then is a precursor of what is to come. No sin, no insecurity, no death, no fear, all accomplished by Jesus, the ultimate man, the God-man, fulfilling Adam's purpose and reversing the curse of sin. And at the fullness of time, we see what was begun in the wilderness is completed in glory. Behold, Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. What I desperately hope for us to see is that Jesus begins the reclaiming of creation in the wilderness testing, and it is completed in Revelation 21 with the new heavens and the new earth. Otherwise, how do you explain Paul saying in him, you are a new creation, and the old is passing away and the new is coming. You are new, and the new is coming. Do you see that? You see the dichotomy there? Are you a new creation finished, or are you going to be a new creation? Right, Christian? Uh, think about the question. Are you a new creation, or are you going to be a new creation? Well, the answer is both, Right? That's the same picture that Jesus is painting for us, that Mark, through his lens, is painting for us here. New creation that's still yet to be completed. But it's initiated. Jesus' presence on the earth turns the wilderness into paradise. If you will, a taste. Oh, what a foretaste of things to come. The elements of Mark's account then paint a stirring picture of Jesus in the wilderness, taking on himself the consequence of man's failure, yet succeeding where man, where man failed and initiating the new creation. 
It's a good picture. Otherwise, what was the point? Right? We talked about this with baptism. Why in the world did Jesus get baptized? He was sinless. It doesn't say anywhere in the text that Jesus got baptized to make his mom, like, feel okay about her son. It certainly never claims anywhere in the text of Scripture that Jesus was admitting any kind of fault. Why did he do this? Well, we have to go to what he said, right? This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. That means to measure to the brim the standard required by God of man. Man has to repent of his sins. So Jesus repents in your place. Man must go and sin no more. So Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the devil and sins not. Man must die having never committed a single crime of violation against the law of God in, in spirit, in truth, in hand, in word, in thought, in heart, ambition, not one millisecond. And what did Jesus do? He died having not violated not one iota of the command of God. All of this is required to fill up God's standard for mankind. So Jesus does all of it, not for himself, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't just give him in his death, he gave him in his life to do all that is required of man for you. Otherwise, why'd he go out in the wilderness? What was the point? So we'd have a nice story. Jesus was out in the wilderness, and he boxed with Satan. What? What's the point? There is no point if he isn't doing for you all that God requires of you so that you might enjoy his accomplishments by faith. It's a great picture. If we can just take it in, it's a wonderful, wonderful picture. So from those six elements of Mark's account, I want us to look, number two, at the emphasis of Mark's introduction. Let us consider the, if you will, the run-up to this moment. The way that Mark introduces Jesus to the reader Verse 1, chapter 1, King Jesus has arrived. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's the ultimate title, right? He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is Christ our Lord. He is Son of Man and Son of God. He is King. And then the forerunner goes before him. Just to make the point clear, the forerunner goes before him in the next verses. As any king would, the father sends his messenger to prepare the way for the son's arrival. Only instead of pomp and petty demands, this king sends a preacher dressed in the clothing of a prophet, preparing hearts, not roads. Thirdly, the king is coronated by his baptism. The the initiating rite of a king is figured here. 
This is displayed in the voice of God, the highest spiritual authority by this pronouncement, this is my son. And the crowning, if you will, of the son with the Holy Spirit. Remember, the endorsement of spiritual authority gives credibility to the claims of human kings to their thrones. Remember that? Remember 1 Kings chapter 1? In every instance throughout human history, the man who makes a claim to the throne wants the spiritual authority in the realm to declare him king. Therefore, in some cases, he just makes himself the spiritual authority. Like King Henry, he's like, I'm the king, and I'm the head of the church. I'm going to build a building so it looks like it's seriously legit. (laughs) We don't have time. And so the highest spiritual authority that one could possibly petition speaks from heaven and says, here is the new king. This is my son. the true and better Adam. The man who will have dominion over the earth. Only where Adam failed, he will succeed. And that's what we see in the next portion. The king triumphs where man fails. It's one, two, three, four. This is how Mark introduces us to Jesus. One, two, three, four. Here's the son of God. Here's the forerunner. Here's his coronation as king. And here he triumphs where man fails. If the new king, Jesus, is going to reign over the earth, which has been forfeited by Adam to Satan, he must defeat the usurper to the throne. Jesus does this over and over again, first by his triumph over Satan's temptation, many times in between there and the cross, and then finally he triumphs over sin and death at the cross. This is the key to this, friends. Personally, he does what you couldn't and can't do. He is not calling you to go toe-to-toe with Satan. Go 10 rounds, right? I find it interesting that most spiritual instruction regarding temptation in the New Testament is to run away from it. (laughs) Run away. Hey, men. Men, we... We don't like the idea of backing down from a conflict. I don't know. Maybe you do. I, I don't, right? I, 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 I almost, almost look forward to the moment. And then when the moment comes, then you go, oh, this is getting serious, right? Maybe I don't want to fight, you know? But we definitely don't like the idea of our pride being kind of cut away at by turning and running from conflict. It kind of, it goes a little bit against our nature. It certainly goes against our sinful, prideful inclinations. It definitely goes against our stated purpose as men in the world. Someone's coming to harm your wife, your family, your mother. You're not going to turn and run. You're going to stand and fight. You must. In fact, this is why you're on the earth. It's why your genetics are different. It's why you have a bigger heart and larger muscles and all that. Your job is to protect. And yet when it comes to temptation, more often than not, in the New Testament, the authors say, tuck tail and run. 
This is a fight you don't want. It's a battle you most likely won't win. We often quote from James, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that sounds like we have a particular strength in the face of the devil, but the context says a little bit more. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So if you will, sandwich between the statement, resist the devil, is submit to God and draw near to God. <laughs> Puts it in context. I don't get the sense that the apostles thought we should foolishly entertain sinful temptation and simply stare the devil down and expect victory. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord, meaning together. Pursue righteousness and love and peace with other people. Why? Because there's strength in numbers. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. So when there's foolish, ignorant controversies, don't get involved and expect to uphold Christian conduct just stay away from it. You're better off running away than getting involved and almost certainly forfeiting your Christian witness. Obviously, there's a time and place. There is. But I just mean we need to make sure and understand what's going on here. Joseph ran away from Potiphar's seductive wife. Paul says, flee youthful passions. John and Paul both compel us to stay away from false teachers, even saying, watch yourself, watch yourself. Second John, verse 8. Don't have anything to do with those false teachers. Watch out for yourself. They'll get you. Why? We're frail. We're not Jesus. Jesus himself said, cut off your hand if it causes you to stumble. He didn't say go back and face down the temptation. He said, do what's required to help your own weakness. Now, there's an element of recognizing the victory we have in Christ over sin's power. But we aren't Jesus. He did what we could not do for us. He went toe-to-toe with temptation and came out victorious. Not so that you could foolishly put yourself in tempting situations and also win, but so that those, those tempting situations would not have absolute rule over you. His job is to win. Your job is to flee. <laughs> Otherwise, why would Paul say in Romans chapter 7, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do. If anyone should be able to flawlessly walk in the victory of Christ's accomplishment over all sin and temptation, it's the Apostle Paul. And yet he said, I don't even understand myself. It's like Moeller said, Al Moeller said to us this week up at the Cove at a little conference. He said, we are, we are an enigma to ourselves. We don't understand ourselves. And husbands and wives, we, we understand this especially, right? Because we have a row with our spouse, have a moment, you storm off, you know, you go to the garage, you start sweeping or whatever you do, you know. And then the emotions settle down a little bit and maybe you come back together and you 
try to talk through things and see things from the other perspective, and you go, yeah, yeah, I was, yeah, you know, all right, I'm sorry. And then what do you say next? I don't know why I did that. Right? There are not enough amens. <laughs> like, I'm not the type that wants to get everybody, like, hooped up in a fury, you know, but when we start talking about husbands and wives, like, having to just say, I'm sorry, we need, there needs to be a lot of, like, amens. Yep, preacher, that's me. Yep, I'm sorry. Yep, mm-hmm. I don't know why I did that. We are a riddle to ourselves. I know why. Because you can't defeat temptation head to head. You might win sometimes. You might make it sometimes. Jesus did it every time. That's the key. He did what you can't do for you. I love it. Mark's, Mark is introducing us here his readers, to Jesus as the man who wins where man has otherwise always lost. He defeated temptation. You get to enjoy his victory. So we have the elements of Mark's account. We have the emphasis of Mark's storytelling, if you will, his presentation of Jesus. And then thirdly, we should ask ourselves, what is the author's desired response? What is the author's desired response? What is the Holy Spirit, through the account of Peter, as recorded by John Mark, hoping for us? How is, how is he hoping we respond to this accounting of Jesus in the wilderness overcoming temptation? Well, I believe there's at least three, if not a hundred things. We don't even have time for my three, so we'll do those, okay? And not the other 97. But I believe one that we might see that testing is a means of God's purposes being fulfilled. Testing is a means of God's purposes being fulfilled. God intended for Jesus to accomplish certain things, and so the Spirit drove him out in the wilderness to be tested. So, too, it is with you that testing is often a means of God's purposes being fulfilled. I love the way William Barclay puts this. He says, in this life, it is impossible that we should escape the assault of temptation. But one thing is sure, temptations are not sent to us to make us fall. They are sent to us to strengthen the nerve and the sinew of our minds and hearts and souls. They are not meant for our ruin, but for our good. They are meant to be tests from which we emerge better warriors and athletes of God. For Jesus, that means triumph over temptation. For you and me, that means God allows us to undergo the pressure of temptation while he is not the author of it, nor does God tempt man to sin. He simply allows it. His purposes then are like a coach who will challenge his athletes to make them stronger, more alert, more experienced, more capable on the field. No wonder James tells us to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Why? Well, because God is using the testing to fulfill his purposes. So you're hurting, you're broken, you're grieving, you're sick, you're persecuted. 
be glad, not because those things are pleasant, but because God is using those things to accomplish his purposes. Count it all joy. Sounds easy. It's not. It might be sickness. It might be political persecution. It might be economic ouster from the marketplace, grief, loss, temptation to sin, even. Your salvation is the beginning of training camp, not the end game. And the Lord uses testing as a means of fulfilling his purpose in you to become like Christ. It's the funny thing about uh, so many uh, of us in our youth, uh, in our inexperience, in our Christian lives. We find ourselves compelling or, or, or contemplating, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? The Bible says it. The will of God is your sanctification. You stop being so sinful and be more like Jesus. A little more each day. That's God's will for your life. Congratulations, all you young people. I just answered the question you're desperately contemplating. From there, go. Go, pursue, dream, build, have babies, right? The will of God is your sanctification. He'll make the rest clear. You don't have to fret, you don't have to worry. Worry only if you're in rebellion against him because he chastens those he loves. So he'll get the belt out. Your salvation is the beginning of training camp, not the end game. Secondly, I believe Mark's desired response for us is this, that we might see Jesus as the true victor over temptation. I mean, that's, uh, it, that's beating a dead horse at this point. But we've, but we've got to see Jesus as the true victor over temptation. Such that where sin had control over the lives of mankind, in Christ, sin no longer reigns. Ultimately, in that the penalty of sin is removed, but even now in this life, the power of sin is nullified. That's why Paul writes to the Romans, are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. So you say God's using temptation and testing to accomplish his purposes, so I guess I should just sin and God's doing his thing? No! Do you not know that if you present yourselves as anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. And so in this, there's an element of because he did, you can. Because he did, you can. You can go and sin no more to a degree. This is the whole David and Goliath story. David, the, David defeats the giant no one else can. But everyone in the army gets to enjoy the fruit of his victory. What you couldn't do, resist the devil, abstain from sin in the heart, mind, hand. In Christ, the defeat is no longer inevitable. You can win. You can tame your gossiping tongue. You can tame your rebellious will against your husband, ladies. You can serve your wives selflessly, men. We can execute good in the world with pure motive because Christ has triumphed over temptation and given us a new heart. Not of our own strength, but we can in him. 
put on Christ and starve your sinful desires. You can. It's fascinating. It's, it's, it's a strange two-sided coin, isn't it? You couldn't, so he did. Now you can in him, but you can't on your own. <laughs> but Mark wants us to see that like the army of Israel who ran after and behind David, forward down across the battle line and pursued the army of the Philistines, so too you, friends, you and I, the church of Jesus Christ, can come behind the victory of Jesus and enjoy his spoil. Thirdly, I believe the Holy Spirit through Mark wants us to see the victory where we otherwise only knew defeat. Wants us to see victory where we otherwise only knew defeat. No sin has overcome you except that which is common to man, Paul writes to the Corinthians. Now, if sin's power over us has been defeated in Christ, then why are we so often not walking in his victory? If sin's power over us, Paul said it in Romans, I just read it. You are no longer slaves to sin if you are in Christ. If sin's power over you, if the inevitability of sinful impulses taken off of you, then why are we so often not walking in that holy victory? Well, there's more to explore on that that we have time for today. But I would say perhaps it's a simple matter of wisdom. We lack wisdom. We need to ask for more of it. Because with more wisdom comes three things. Ready? Wise habits. Wise abstention. Wise investment. Wise habits, wise abstention, wise investment. If you find yourself wondering, why am I not like the army of Israel, enjoying the victory with Jesus, and instead being wrecked and beaten and defeated by sinful temptation over and over and over again, perhaps you simply need more wisdom. More wisdom applied will result in wiser habits, wise abstention, meaning you abstain from, you resist and don't, and wise investment, meaning you do take in. Why are you playing stupid video games on your phone instead of reading the scriptures or reading one of the many wonderful theological volumes written by modern and ancient men? Wise investment versus foolish investment. See, you need wisdom. You need to understand that this has happened, but you need wisdom then to apply it. Well, the last thing, fourthly, I'll do four out of a hundred. Fourthly, I think Mark might want us to simply see Jesus and be in awe of him. Just be in awe of Jesus. All right? 
be in awe of his glory. Therefore, he has made him. He was made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation or a satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Oh, thank you, Jesus. That means when I'm suffering under the weight of sinful temptation, I'm not alone. He is able to help me. Yeah. I think Mark wants us to just be in awe of the glory of our Savior who accomplished what we acknowledge in a moment of honesty is brutally impossible for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is as if Mark is compelling us to worship. Behold your king, Jesus, seated on the throne. He is reigning. He is victorious. Where you fail, he has already won. So let us go forth and walk in the victory he has accomplished. Confident that he will keep us, he will uphold us wherever we go, even when we fail, even when we are tried. Our victory over sin and death is not accomplished by our faith, it is enjoyed by us through faith. And so behold the one who has done what we cannot so that he might reclaim you from the clutches of Satan. Glory be to God. Yeah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Mark's account, where we are compelled to just enjoy and think deeply about the goodness of what Christ has accomplished. May it resonate in us this week. May we enjoy uh, the, the wonder of your victory over sin. May we be compelled also then to walk in victory with you, knowing that you will keep us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.